As we remain standing, let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know of anyone who enjoys uncertainty. Now, maybe there's someone out there who does, but I'm quite confident in saying that they are the exception and not the rule. Being unsure of things can leave us feeling a, a little unbalanced as life starts to move in uncomfortable directions. More and more these days, this seems to be the conversation I am having in pastoral meetings, people both Christian and non, having no idea what to make of where their lives are heading, where the world is heading. Whether we're thinking about our lives, our jobs, our finances, or even our church, we can be uncertain of the future. I wonder if as the apostles were walking away from the ascension, walking away from all of it, after seeing their Lord ascend into heaven as they entered into Jerusalem, I wonder, was there just a little bit of uncertainty? And they believed in the promise of the Lord. I'm not questioning that. They believed that the Holy Spirit would come and that they would be empowered to fulfill the mission of God. But as one day turns to the next, When would these things come? What would it look like? How would it all happen? When, what, how? These are words that many of us are familiar with in our walks with Christ, aren't they? And so in the face of uncertainty, what is the Christian to do? Or better yet, what is the church of God to do? Well, we find an answer in the second half of Acts chapter 1, this passage that so many of us are quick to skip over in an attempt to get to Pentecost faster. Feels like almost an interlude between these two important moments, but this is an important account, account for us to, to interact with. It, it is God's word, and all of God's word is good, and so we should learn from it. In this account... We see that when the church experiences a period of waiting and uncertainty, we are to come together prayerfully, humbly seek the leading of our God, and trust in his sovereign goodness to accomplish his will in and through us. As we, are, as we turn to our passage this morning, we are told that men and women are gathering together in the upper room. They've been told to wait in Jerusalem, a city that is filled with enemies who have just crucified their master. It's no wonder that John tells us in his gospel that they were afraid. After all, they might wonder, could they expect the same fate? Some days have passed, but I'm sure the fear lingered. And yet, here they are. They follow their master's instructions. They stay in Jerusalem, and in these days of waiting, they took upon themselves the exact right posture 
The posture of prayer. Look at verse 14. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This was a group of about 120 people, we are told, and they are united in prayer. Knowing they were in a season of waiting, they prayed. How instructive this should be for the church. When faced with times of uncertainty, we want to be people of action. And we assume that prayer is the opposite of action. We want to be out there solving our problems, doing something. Not sitting around or spending all of our time on our knees praying. Many Christians have written wonderful books on the nature and necessity of prayer. And we speak glowingly of how important it is to our relationship with God and how we understand that we can accomplish nothing without it. And that that is all true. Functionally, we tend to act as if prayer is entirely unnecessary. How can I say that? Well, because I know all too well how easy it is to set prayer aside the moment that work needs to be done. It is the temptation faced by every pastor, certainly, and I would argue by every Christian, to so be about the business of God that we spend no time speaking with God. And in the face of this temptation, how helpful it is to be reminded that who the Christian is on their knees before God Almighty, that they are and no more. In a season of waiting, knowing the Lord has promised to act, but unsure of when or how, this earliest church came together in prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Because they knew that it is through prayer that our Father shapes our heart to be like the heart of one of his very own children. In prayers of petition, yes, but also in adoration and thanksgiving, even in prayers of confession and repentance, our hearts and our minds are trained to think and to love as Jesus did. Because we are spending time with him. We are focused upon him in our prayers. And just as when we spend focused time with another person, we begin to speak and act like they do. So it is that as we spend time praying to our father, we become more like his son. Prayer then is not something that gets in the way of all the things we want to accomplish or those things that we deem most important. It is, in fact, one of the most important things we can ever do. As the great Anglican theologian J.I. Packer said, it is not too much to say that God made us to pray. That prayer is not the easiest, but the most natural activity in which we engage. Prayer is central to the life and health of the individual believer and the church at large. It is in prayer that we uphold our end of the ongoing relationship we have with our Father, seeking Him, speaking with Him, being formed by Him. 
And as we pray, we are not formed only ourselves individually, but together. In this passage, Luke intentionally lists each apostle by name. Of course, if we know the story, we know there is one missing. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Christ. In fact, we could say that Judas might be the figure that looms largest over this entire scene. With him in mind, it would have been so easy for the apostles to look at one another with an element of distrust, wouldn't it? After all, Judas was one of them. And he hatched the plot to see Jesus put to death. And then when things got tough, each and every one of the apostles ran for the hills. They abandoned Christ. In the face of that, how easy it would have been for them to look around and wonder if their brothers would turn on them. How easy it would have been for this earliest of churches to look at one another and think, I don't know if they're for me. How sad it is that such a sentiment exists in so many churches today. But instead of that, Luke shows us that each of the eleven came together, as verse 14 says, all of these with one accord. They came together in prayer, and they were united together as the body of Christ. That's part of what prayer does. It brings individuals into something greater than themselves. It creates relationship between brother and sister as we sit together at the feet of our Father. The application here, then, is is rather straightforward, isn't it? I need to spend the next five minutes yelling at each of you because your prayer life is not good enough. You are not doing enough. No. No. The point here is not condemnation but rather a call to embrace the gift of prayer. It is invitation. Rather than seeing prayer as something that gets in the way of the work that we really have to do, we need to see it as the engine that makes our lives in Christ function as they should. It is the opportunity to come before our Father on our own and together. To speak to him as only a child can to their father. In the face of uncertainty and waiting, the church prayed. The church also applied God-given wisdom. In the midst of this prayer, Peter recognizes that there is a problem to be addressed. The leadership of this new church has a big old hole in it. There were meant to be 12, and now there are 11. And so Peter applies God-given wisdom to address this leadership gap. And we could say that he used God-given wisdom because he went to the source of wisdom, God himself through his very word. Verse 16 
Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Jesus, who be, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. We don't want to get those two guys mixed up. Now, first of all, if you're ever wondering about what the Bible is, we can have no doubt about what Peter thought about it. He says it right here for us. It is the very word of God. Peter is about to quote the Psalms. Words that he indicates here in verse 16 are spoken by the Holy Spirit himself through David. That is where scripture comes from. From God himself. And that is crucial for us to remember. It is crucial for us to pick up on what's going on here. The church is gathered together in a posture of prayer. They're worshiping. They're praying together. And it is in that setting, with Peter's mind shaped by prayer and worship, that the wisdom of the scriptures is made clear to him. This whole scene is a wonderful image of how the Lord leads his people. We speak to him in our prayers. He speaks to us in his word. When our minds are shaped by our prayer and his word, we can then move forward in God-given wisdom. To help us with this, I want to again rely on the words of J.I. Packer. That's a wise thing to do when there's someone who knows a whole lot more than you do. He wrote this. Does God then really tell us things when we pray? Yes. Shall probably not hear voices, nor feel sudden strong impressions of a message coming through. But as we analyze and verbalize our problems before God's throne and tell him what we want and why we want it, and think our way through passages and principles of God's written word bearing on the matter in hand, we shall find many certainties crystallizing in our hearts as to God's view of us and our prayers and his will for us. And others. That is, in a sense, exactly what is happening with Peter in this moment. We are not told that he heard a voice from heaven. We are not told that he had a gut feeling that led him in a particular direction. Rather, as he prayed, as he considered the word of God, the certainty of how to move forward became crystallized in his mind. And he followed faithfully. Through his prayer, he remembers the words of the Psalms. And and he sees how they speak, literally in his case, to his very moment. He remembers the words of Psalm 109 that say, Let another take his office. Speaking of Judas, he needs to be replaced. No doubt the teachings of Christ himself helped to form this very moment. In Luke 22, we're told that Jesus teaches the 12 apostles that they would sit upon thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, for that to happen, you need a 12, don't you? Otherwise, one of the tribes is just going to be sitting there with an empty throne. You need a 12. Someone else must take the office that Judas rejected when he rejected Christ. 
It's the posture of prayer coupled with God's leading through his word that allows for the application of God-given wisdom to the circumstances we face. It's what Peter did. That's not always as cut and dry. It's not always do A, then B, and C will occur. But what we will find is the values of the kingdom of God through prayer and scriptures. And now that we have been given the Holy Spirit, those of us who believe and are baptized in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit and he gives us the wisdom to apply those values, those teachings from God's word to our lives, our actions, and our choices. And we see that in how Peter acts here. We see that even in the standard that he set for who should replace Judas. Verse 21, so one of the the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. At this point in time, Peter can't open his Bible and say, oh yeah, here's here's the qualifications for an apostle. It's not written out for him. And so he uses God-given wisdom. The next apostle should be a man who is with Christ from beginning to end, who would have first-hand knowledge and experience of the life and work of Christ. You seen it all? Not only would he know the work of Christ well, but having been with the apostles for years, they would have some kind of an ability to speak to his character and faith. It's a wise standard, isn't it? This isn't New guy who just walked in the door and, yeah, he looks nice, let's pick him. And since this apostle would have been a witness to the resurrection, he can then be a faithful witness to the resurrection, can't he? He saw it. Again, it's a wise standard. Peter prayed, he saw a problem. He applied the wisdom he had been given to set an expected standard for leadership. It is a fantastic example, a biblical example of decision-making in the body of Christ. It is the same pattern that we as individuals and as a church together should apply in our decision-making and how we move forward. We pray, we seek God's wisdom in the scriptures, We are led by him to use the wisdom that he has given us. There's just one last piece. Potentially the hardest of all. We need prayer, scripture, God-given wisdom, and the humility to submit to the Lord's will. See why I say that might be the hardest one? Because it ain't always the same as ours, is it? Let's face it, sometimes we can pray and seek the Lord's wisdom, and in our flesh we get it completely wrong. I've said before, if everything that I wanted for St. Aidan's happened when I wanted it to happen, we would be in a really bad spot right now. I tried to faithfully seek the Lord's wisdom, I I prayed, I I tried to make godly decisions, but my timing would have been completely wrong, because there was this little hiccup coming around the corner called COVID-19, I had no idea that was coming two years ago, right? 
That can happen. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we've done something wrong necessarily. It just means that we have to have a posture of humility in all of our life with Christ. That we can come up with the best and most faithful plans we can think of. But we hold them loosely. Willing to let go of that plan when it becomes clear that the Lord has something different in mind. That can be very challenging. Because we like our plans. I really like my plans. I don't want to let go of them. It is unwise to try to fight the will of God. <laughs> I think that's what the casting of lots here actually shows us. The church here finds two men who fulfill the wise standard that Peter set for the next apostle, and then they cast lots to choose between them. Now, admittedly, we can read about that, and it seems kind of weird. It seems like an odd choice to make a decision to our 21st century Western ears. But really, when you think about it, is it really all that different than casting a ballot or raising a hand? The values and the principles are the same. Verse 24, we read this. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now, Admittedly, other than the apostle part and the Judas part, well, that sounds a lot like the prayers we were praying before our synod to elect a bishop, doesn't it? It's not all that different. The choice mechanism should not be the focus here as much as we tend to make it the focus. Rather, it is the church's humble, submitted hearts to the will of the Father. New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall put it this way, said the real choice was left to the Lord, since apostleship is not a humanly ordained office. The assembly therefore prayed that he would exercise his choice in virtue of his knowledge of men's hearts. The church was asking the Lord to make his choice of the right man. They were humbly submitted to his will. And is that not exactly the heart that we should have in all of our prayers? And we pray, Lord, we've prayed, we've sought your wisdom. We've read your word. We've, our hearts have been shaped and our minds have been shaped. And we think this is the way that we should go. But have your way. Your will be done. For your will is far better than ours. So where we are in error, correct us. Where we are in your will, confirm it. Gosh, that sounds like a wonderful prayer for us to be praying before everything we do. In all our life together, here at St. Aidan's, that is the prayer that should be on our lips, that in all parts of our life, the Father's will would be done. Being the church of Christ means seeking the Lord together, being formed together, and submitting together. That is what we see here in Acts church devoted to prayer, God's word, and God's will. Can the same be said for us here at St. Aidan's? It is my prayer that not only that it can be, but that it would continue to be. 
Are we here willing to set aside our desires, our, our desires for ourselves, for, for our church, for our families, all of it before the Lord? Do we believe that His will is better than ours? I pray that we do. And I ask that all of you would continue to pray for the leadership here, that we would have that heart as well. That it wouldn't be about making the church in our image, but following the will of God for His people. That in COVID and in all that comes our way, we would not be knocked off course by fear or uncertainty, but that this would be a house of prayer, of godly wisdom, of God's word, and of God-given humility. For our God is with us. His will is perfect, and he will lead us as we faithfully follow him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you do lead your people in your perfect will. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to submit our plans to your plan. That you would help each of us to seek you and to seek how to serve you according to your will. That this would be a place that never ceases to faithfully praise and proclaim Jesus Christ. That countless, countless people would come to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.